All right, let's go to Psalm 119, and we are going to read uh, verses uh, the 19th and the 20th sets of eight. We're going to read starting in verse 145 down through verse number 160. All right. All right, let's read these. Psalm 119, verse 145 says, I cried with my whole heart, hear me, O Lord. I will keep thy statutes. I cried unto thee, save me, and I shall keep thy testimonies. I prevented the dawning of the morning and cried, I hoped in thy word. Mine eyes prevented the night watches that I might meditate in thy word. Hear my voice according unto thy loving kindness. O Lord, quicken me according to thy judgment. They draw nigh that follow after mischief. They are far from thy law. Thou art near, O Lord, and all thy commandments are truth. Concerning thy testimonies, I have known of old that thou hast founded them forever. Consider mine affliction and deliver me, for I do not forget thy law. Plead my cause and deliver me. Quicken me according to thy word. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they seek not thy statutes. Greater thy tender mercies, O Lord, quicken me according to thy judgments. Many are my persecutors and mine enemies, yet do I not decline from thy testimonies. I beheld the transgressors and was grieved, because they kept not thy word. Consider how I love thy precepts. Quicken me, O Lord, according to thy loving kindness. Thy word is true from the beginning, and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. All right, let's pray together. Lord, first of all, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. We rose today. Those that know you, that have trusted in Christ, we rose this morning just as secure And uh, with uh, eternal life, just as faithful, just as true, just as reliable as we did when we went to sleep because of your faithfulness to us and because of your promises. Lord, thank you for your people as well, uh, that you have established this church, that you have established these believers. Help them, Lord, especially as we study Psalm 119 this morning. Please, by your Spirit, teach them, teach me, teach us all together to to learn to walk with you, to love you, and to relate to you according to your Word. I pray that your Word would have an ever more prominent uh, place in our lives um, through the study of your Word. So, Lord, we ask you to bless our lesson today and stir our hearts, not just now, but also in the service to follow. And, Lord, for... um, Sister Priscilla and Sister Pam, as they teach, and we pray that you'd give them wisdom and understanding as they instruct those younger people. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me get a water. <clears throat> All right, so we will pick up in verse number 150. It says, we will not spend very much time here because it overlaps in something in the next set. They draw nigh that follow after mischief, They are far from thy law. Thou art near, O Lord, and all thy commandments are truth. 
Concerning thy testimonies, I have known of old that thou hast founded them forever. Has founded them forever. Notice in verse 1, we'll come back to 150, but in 152, we know, we've already seen how the Word of God is settled. How many, of you have, how many of you remember the verse that we studied already? It says, Forever, O Lord, thy Word is settled in heaven. And we think about that, and you know, oftentimes I've heard people quote that verse to, to say that the Word of God does not change, but, but if you think about it a minute, the fact that the Word of God is settled in heaven doesn't really help us. In other words, that's from God's perspective. In other words, what He spoke, that is established. Now, we know that that has been given, given to us, but there are people that, that attempt to corrupt the Scripture, and that's definitely the case. But when we talk about the Word of God being settled, it being established, it being, uh, it is, that means it is permanent. So from the moment God spoke it, God has obligated Himself to what it says. Think about that. The moment God, and we know the Lord does not do things by accident or by chance or just, just off the cuff like we do, that he, everything He does is with a, with a purpose. And so when God speaks something, whether it be something that He will do, something He will not do, whether it be a fact that He tells us about, about our, our world or His world or, or the heavenly world or whatever it might be, whatever God says, He obligates Himself to that thing. In other words, because everything he says is true. He cannot lie. That's what the Scripture says. And this is also, so that means the Bible, the Scripture is settled. All right? It's permanent. From the moment God speaks it, because of his nature, it is, it is permanent. But that is also the basis and the reason why no one should alter what God says. That's also the reason why no one should try and alter what God says. And God, in the book, not only in the book of Revelation, which is probably the most familiar passage in which God warns people from altering His Word, but in Proverbs, the Bible says, Add thou not unto His words, lest He rebuke thee, and thou be found a liar. It is the, the Word of... And, and sometimes we do not... There are people that absolutely, there are people that tinker with the text of the Scripture. Uh, and I think that's an especially brazen sort of person that tinkers with the actual text, text of Scripture. But the little nefarious little practice that we common people <laughs> often do is we will not tinker with the text of Scripture, but will alter what it says to suit some purpose that we have. In other words, we didn't change. We, we don't actually take white out and alter what the verses say, but in our own mind and heart, we alter what it says to make a cutout, a carve-out for our own practice. Well, that doesn't really mean that. That's often how we'll do it. Well, that's not the, it's not supposed to be interpreted like that. You know, I, I think of recent examples I've heard of where someone, well, someone is presented with a clear, a clear verse of Scripture that proves a certain truth and that person just mockingly dismisses the verse as if it's just, as if, well, I, <laughs> that doesn't mean that. Actually, it does. And altering God's word to suit us, although it might not be on the, in the same severity as actually whiting out or striking out what God says in print, it is in the, in the same kind of category <laughs> or genre of changing God's Word to suit one's personal preferences. That's why we go, listen, that's why we go back, our church, I talked about it on Wednesday night, 
That's why we go back to the Bible is the final authority. The Bible is, that's what it means to be a Bible Christian, that the Bible determines what we believe and the Bible determines what we do. God's Word is the final authority. It corrects us. It directs us, not the reverse. And, uh, you know, often if, if, that's not, if that's not our final authority, do you know what will direct us? Do you know what will guide our decisions? Anybody want to guess? What'd you say? The world. You agree? Everybody who agrees, raise your hand. Very good, very good, very good. Correct. Because the, and we talked about this before, the torrent of the world, if it's compared to a river, that flow of this world, its philosophies, its values, its uh, motives, its desires, its goals, its aims, aims, all of those things are like, a, are, are like the, the current of a river that we live in. You know, we're like little islands and the river is just trying to wash over us and the only thing that's keeping us settled is the, the fact that God's Word is settled and doesn't change. But if we, if we unmoor ourselves from that, it will take us right away. And then we'll come back, and this is exactly what happens in churches everywhere. It makes no, listen, in a lot of cases, it makes no difference if it's a church or not a church. It don't make any difference. People go back to the Bible and say, well, the Bible doesn't really mean that. Paul didn't know what he was talking about. You know, well, Jesus, you know, he lived in a different time. Stuff like that. And so there you have the alteration of God's Word. But God's Word is settled. Now, let's look at verse 153. The Lord really spoke to me when I read verse 153, and I hope it will be a similar blessing to you. Consider mine affliction and deliver me, for I do not forget thy law. In this verse, the psalmist, well, let's say this. We've read, this is the 153rd verse of this psalm that we have studied. We have been methodically going through the verses, right? How many times have you seen the psalmist ask God for deliverance or cry out to God because of his affliction or ask God for some sort of help in that way? I mean, dozens of times, right? So many times that we skip, I've skipped a lot of those verses just because we, you know, we've covered them to a, such a level that, you know, there's definitely more than we covered, but we covered them, I felt, sufficiently, so we moved on. But dozens of times the psalmist does this, but this is a little bit different. The psalmist in this verse appeals to God's heart in his affliction. The basis of his appeal is not his word or his promises. The basis of his appeal is God's very heart. You see, our God is not cold and indifferent to us. He is not cold and indifferent to us personally, and He is not cold and indifferent to us when we are in affliction. You know, oftentimes, for instance, the God of Islam, the God of Islam is described by those that believe, and, and it's reflected. It's reflected in their own attitude, you see. When, see, because the way you think of God, the way you think of God is reflected in the way you act. 
That's a fact. And so in Islam, you know, it's a very strict religion. It's a very strict religion. And the way that they view their God is reflected in that strictness. So they view God, in fact, Brother, uh, Brother Emil, how many of you remember Brother Emil? Brother Emil once told me that in Arabic, because he spoke, he spoke Arabic, that I guess was his native tongue. In Arabic, the Arabic Quran, which is only, the only real Quran according to Islam, the word love does not occur anywhere in the Quran. doesn't occur anywhere in the Quran. The way that they describe their God is very strict. Now, they, they'll talk about His mercy, but, it's, but His mercy is like it's from a high and lofty position. In other words, there's, you don't get the sense that He's feeling toward His creation all right, as they describe it. That is not what we see in the Scripture at all. Rather, the opposite. Let's look at a few verses here. Look at Isaiah 63, if you would. We'll kind of flip back and forth because I didn't put them in order, so we'll just kind of go as I have them written down, if that's okay. Isaiah 63, verse... Verse 7. says this, I will mention the loving kindnesses of the Lord <clears throat> and the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord hath bestowed on us and the great goodness toward the house of Israel which He hath bestowed on them according to His mercies and according to the multitude of His loving kindnesses. Loving kindness. You know that's an invented word? I think it was, in, it was actually invented by William Tyndale when he was translating the Bible. It combines two words. It's beautiful. Verse number 8. For he said, surely they are my people. This is what God is saying now. Be, be, be slow in your reading of these verses. For he said, surely they are my people, children that will not lie. So he was their Savior. In all their affliction, what's it say? He was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them and he bare them and carried them all the days of old. Was God at a distance, indifferent to their pain and affliction? No. He Himself was afflicted at their affliction. All right, let's look at another. Go all the way back to the book of Exodus, if you would. Chapter 3. That's the second book of the Bible, in case you didn't know. I heard that chuckle. Exodus chapter 3. The Lord looks down upon Egypt where His people, the Hebrews, are currently enslaved. And in verse number 7, He looks down and He says, <clears throat> And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of My people which are in Egypt and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters. Notice the next sentence. For I know their sorrows. See that? Look at Psalm one, uh, Psalm thirty-one. Psalm number thirty-one, <clears throat> verse seven. I will be glad. Psalm thirty-one, verse seven. 
I will be glad and rejoice in thy mercy, for thou hast considered my trouble. Thou hast known my soul in adversities. You see that? Thou hast known my soul in adversities. I can't say I know exactly what the Lord is saying in this. But this is not from a distance. <laughs> this is a very personal and intimate familiarity with this, uh, the pain of the psalmist here. All right, one more. Psalm 106, if you would. Verse number 44 says this, Nevertheless, 43 to get the context, Many times did he deliver them, but they provoked him with their counsel and were brought low for their iniquity. Nevertheless, he regarded their affliction when he heard their cry. You see, their cry, when, God, when his people cried out to, to the Lord, their cry if we could say, pricked his heart. Not just God's brain, as you might, you know, not that God has a brain, physical brain, but you know what I'm saying. It, it, didn't, it wasn't just intellectual. It, was, it, went, it went to a level that, uh, a level that we, we would call emotional. Now going back to this, consider mine affliction in Psalm 119. So the psalmist is, again, asking God to He's, his basis for his cry, his appeal, is based upon God's, God's um, heart. Now, we can appeal to God on the basis of what He has promised, on the basis of the truth, and that's, all, that's fine, that's true. We've seen that before. We can appeal to God on the basis of the fact that we have no other help, the fact that He's our only hope. There's, there's, a, lot of, there's a lot of reasons that we might appeal to God, but here's the thing. I just want to encourage you to integrate this little statement into your prayers when you're having a hard time. You can look at the Lord, especially as a child of God, but I think even, even people that do not know the Lord, when they cry out to God, they, they don't know God. They don't know Christ. They're not forgiven of their sin, but they cry out to God, and God is moved. And, and there are plenty of instances where God helps those people regardless of the fact that they don't know Him. God delivers them. That does happen. Absolutely does happen. Integrate this into your prayer life. Lord, I'm having a hard time. Would you please consider my affliction? Would your heart be touched with the, with the trouble I'm in right now? I want to tell you something. Not just, and also not just for yourself, but also for others. And I want you, I want you to know that this, this verse has come to my mind so often as I've tried to pray for you guys this week. Because as I thought, especially of Sister Wendy, of my wife, of others, like the Coops that we mentioned just a minute ago, Glenda Coop, Lord help them consider their affliction. I'm telling you, God is not distant and indifferent. He is moved by that. That's amazing. That's amazing. 
God is moved at that. He says in verse 153 again, and deliver me, consider mine affliction and deliver me, for I do not forget thy law. Affliction. Spurgeon said this in Treasury of Scripture Knowledge, no, I'm sorry, Treasury of David. He will not, God will not long leave a man in trouble whose only fear in trouble is lest he should leave the way of right. God, you got to help me because if you don't help me, I'm, I might sin. You know, that's, it's a foolish person that says, oh, I'd never do that. Oh, I, I could never. I, I, no, that's, a fool, that's foolish talk. That's foolish talk. The words of the wise, the prayer of the wise says, Lord, I, I'm having a hard time, and Lord, please help me because if you don't, I'm sure to fall. You think that gets God's attention? Now, of course, the Lord knows how much you can bear. Second Corinthians, or First Corinthians, chapter ten, verse thirteen says, "About the Lord hath not given us temptation above that which we are able to bear, but He'll give a way of escape." Remember that a way of escape that ye may be able to bear it. In fact, let's look at that real quick because that's I think that that's relevant to our study. First Corinthians, chapter ten. I misquoted it, of course, but verse 13 says this, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will, with the temptation, also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. You're talking about this is the point Spurgeon was making from, the, from affliction or temptation, which those aren't exactly the same, but they're, they're related. They can be related. Is we cry out to God and say, God, I, 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 you, please help me because I, I might fall. The Lord sees that. That gets God's attention. He is going to deliver. He says right here, in that temptation, He is going to provide a way of escape because He doesn't want you He doesn't want me to fall. He doesn't want us to stumble. He doesn't want us to sin. So He is going to provide a way of escape. Our cry there, therefore, will be heard by God in that case. No doubt about it. No doubt about it. And I hope the Lord brings these things to your mind as you you pray, as you talk to Him, as you pray for others. Lord, consider their affliction. Look at it. Look at it. Think about it. Think how much pain they're in right now. How much suffering they're going through. I'm just telling you, I think that's powerful. Think about your own own kids and how you are almost physically moved at their suffering, right? Little Cooper. I mean, how would you feel if, if something happened to little Cooper? I mean, you would not be able to resist moving, right, in his direction. And uh, that's, that's what we see here. Verse 155, <clears throat> look at verse 155. It's related to verse 150. I'll read them both. Verse 155 says, Salvation is far from the wicked, for they seek not thy statutes. Verse 150 says, They draw nigh that follow after mischief. They are far from thy law. So here's what we're talking about. Get all, I'll get a little bit technical. We're talking about Spatial distance, that's what we find here. Spatial 
distance, far. Verse 150, they are far from thy law. 155, salvation is far from the wicked. Now, again, we, we haven't studied this, but we have seen it when the, we, this term wicked comes up. The wicked, although we all do wicked things, the wicked, the personification of wickedness, the wicked is, first of all, applied to the devil himself. But then, as an extension, it's also applied to a certain class of people, not just sinners, not just transgressors. A transgressor is someone who breaks God's law. All of us are in that category, all right? It's not just a, 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 an ignorant or a foolish person. Proverbs describes the foolish person. Uh, kids are described as foolish. That's not the same as wicked. What, somebody, somebody help me understand what this, based upon the gen, the, your general knowledge of the word wicked. How is wicked different than just a regular, you might say a regular sinner? Somebody help me. Somebody help me. Ooh, that's a good one. Taking joy in sin. I think that relates to Romans 1, right? End of Romans 1. Yes, sir. There you go. Someone who hates God, by extension then, someone who sets themselves against God on purpose. Yes, sir. There you go. We're, get, we're, we're, all, we're all around it. These are all, this is it right here. These are all the different aspects of this definition. Someone who knows the truth and intentionally goes against it. That's their motive. Anybody else? Yes, sir. There you go. All right. Anybody else? All these, sir? Exactly. The kind of brazenness, boldness in sin. That goes back to what, what Brother David said, Brother Mark said, others the idea of a wit, the wicked is a, is a special class, is a special class. This is not average sinner. Now, th- what I'm saying does not mean that people who don't fit into wicked are all going to go to heaven. That's not true. <laughs> uh, actually, the, all you got to do to forfeit heaven is sin, and that just once, right? Adam and Eve proved that, right? That fruit might have tasted good, but that one bite was all that was required because it violated God's law. They were no longer fit. However, when a person goes into wickedness, that is, they become one of the wicked, it affects God's response to them. Because now they're not just sinning foolishly following the lust of the flesh. Now they're setting their heart against God. Notice this. We'll have to conclude with this point. In Mark 12, 34... There was a man that came to Jesus, and uh, there was a conversation in which Jesus asked him about the law and the sacrifices, and the man said, the man said uh, that all the law and the sacrifices, that the, the first two commandments, the loving God and loving your neighbor are more than all of the law and sacrifices, right? And Jesus said what to that man? He said, thou art not far in the kingdom of God. We're talking about spatial distance, right? In, in this, we see you're, they're far from the kingdom of God. There, Jesus said, you're not far. You're close. You know why he was close? Because he was looking at the scripture. You see, in this case, verse 150, 
They are far from God's law. You notice the distance between the person and God's law. They don't want God's law. It's an offense to them. They don't want God's word. They avoid it because the Bible says in John 3, verse 20, that light shines in darkness. It offends them. It rebukes them, and so they avoid it. They don't, they don't want the light. The light is found in God's Word. God's Word shines light on their works. Their works are evil, so they avoid the light. That means they withdraw from God's Word. They don't want to hear it. They turn it off when they're scrolling Facebook or whatever, these Instagram. What, come on, help me, help me. Be real. What's the others? Huh? TikTok, whatever. They see Scripture, they just scroll as fast as they can. They don't, they don't want to see it. They don't want to see it. You say, well, are you really nitpicking that? Yes. Because, listen now, I'm not making a big deal out of nothing. In that moment, as that person's scrolling, and they see a scripture verse that says something they don't particularly care for, they choose to just, God sees that motive. He sees that aversion to that scripture verse. That's distance. You're nitpicking, maybe. But somehow I don't think it's going to be nitpicky when the Lord brings that back up. Because the motive is there. Yeah, I know, I know when I look at something and it's some crazy off-the-wall thing with, I mean, how many of you, some political thing you looked at or you come across it and you're like, yeah, whatever. People do that with the Scripture all the time. It's a distance. On the other hand, the Bereans, look at Acts 17. We'll finish here. Acts 17, verse number 11. You should be glad that you, you live so close to a place called Berea. I know my wife's going to roll her eyes. We have a constant battle in our home about Berea versus Wade Hampton. So uppity. Wade Hampton used to be nicer than it is now, just saying. <laughs> but Berea has slidden, I think most would agree, <laughs> to some degree. Uh, when my grandparents, I, I'm out of time here, but when my grandparents moved to Berea when, in the 70s, when, when my mom was in high school, uh, there was nothing there. It was this Berea where Berea Hardware used to be. How many remember Berea Hardware, of course? I used to work there. Anyway, where Bria Hardware used to be, that was it. That was where Bria Elementary was, Bria High School, that was, that was it. But where they lived in Berea was, I mean, they were building houses. So it was new. It was like the suburbs of Greenville. It's not that way anymore. But these Bereans in verse 11, the Bible says, Verse 11 says, they, These were more noble than those in Thessalonica, the Bereans, in that they received the word of God with all readiness of mind and searched the Scriptures daily whether those things were so. You see that? These Bereans who aren't believers, they're Jews, but they're not believers, but Paul came and he said, look at what the Bible says. You know what they did? They followed that up and they read it and they searched it and they got close to the Bible, close to the Scripture. What's the next verse say? Therefore, Many of them believed. You see that? Their, their attention to God's Word led them to faith. So here's the principle. Distance from God's Word takes you further and further from salvation. 
Nearness to God's word brings you closer to salvation. And that's seen over and over and over in the scripture. And this is a good indicator for your own spiritual condition, even as a believer. Believers often withdraw from God's word. That's almost, that's almost is it not the, one of the first things that goes whenever they're starting to slip is they withdraw from God's word. They withdraw from the church because that's where God's word is taught and preached. They withdraw from personal Bible reading. And that happens when a, a person is, you're witnessing to someone and they're interested in all, and all of a sudden they just seem to cool off. They don't want to read the Bible. They don't want you to, to tell them what the scripture says anymore. It's, a, it's, a, it's an indicator. It's a, almost a litmus test. On the other hand, when someone is getting closer and closer to salvation, they're getting closer and closer to God's word. Their response to it is different. And that's what we see here. The role of God's word in salvation, the distance is a strong indicator of how, how close they are to salvation or far from salvation. All right, we'll have to stop there. <clears throat> Let's pray.